This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com slash c-suite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide. I'm your host, Jared Surf, and here with me today is... My name is Ken. I am, I think, possibly Jared's second oldest friend at this point. Probably, I want to say, by about nine or ten years, but you're definitely pretty far down in the timeline. Eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot I can do about, you know, the person I'm thinking of anyway. Yeah, considering that's what see, I was 11 months and she was six months old. Yeah, you. Yeah, no, I can't really compete with that. I mean, you could try, but like. You would have to pull some time shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's worked out. So this particular timeline has worked out so far. I mean, it helps that I like her. So. <laughs> yes it does help when your friends like each other so we've had ken on the show a few times before usually during the world building episodes because it's something he likes to do and also explore in our real world how things came to be the way they are and why so we're here to talk about world building because you and i talk about world building a lot and have for longer than either of us should maybe admit on the air honestly it's something we did as kind of a joy and an exercise far before either of us had any real idea what it was about yeah sure and engaged in any way professionally yeah we talk in recess y'all <laughs> come to think of it yes yeah i was thinking about it and we actually are <laughs> third grade yeah yeah i think it was both the combination of analyzing things we had read as well as trying to see how they could be assembled better if we started with different premises yeah i mean i think what it comes down to is i have pretty good recall of most stuff I've ever run into. And you have a much better sense of how things should be assembled than I do. I get so tempted to like set up blocks to knock over and you seem <laughs> more immune to that than me. <laughs> I, I think, and I think this is probably, you know, here's an organic entry to this. We talked in our previous episode about two of the things that keep people from in actuality creating, right? Fear and expectation of what will happen. Should it not work or be right? Or you're confused. Because let's be honest, you're going to be. 
Yeah. You're exploring a thing that isn't fully known or established or developed or understood yet. No, and it might turn out that whatever you dig up is just not good. Sure. Right. And then you have to learn from that and move on. And yeah. on the show lately, we've talked about this in terms of truths of world story and character, what they are, how to recognize them, and importantly, how to find them. From my experience, I've had to learn in my work that I do not always know what these things are going in in entirety. It's an act of discovery. And I've had to appreciate and understand that this is my process. There are other folks I've worked with and taught and we've had on the show who are far more, I don't want to use the word meticulous, but they have to have things known. If not in entirety, then with, well, and you're a good example. There's a certain amount of, there is a certain amount of certainty you want before you commence, right? Well, so what I like to do, if I'm setting up for a role-playing game or if I am planning some kind of, if I'm supposed to be portraying a character for some reason, which pretty much always happens in the context of role-playing games, right? Uh, I want to know sort of some big touchstones. Like when we're uh, setting up for the, what was it, Fellowship episode? Sure where we spent a little while talking about who each of the characters was. And so we found out that my giant was, you know, from some kind of afterlife slash cosmic realm where he was basically just like nobody important at all. A glorified gardener to the bull of something or other of some such importance. Right. And I think I said something about him not being married. And then later in the game, I implied I was, I implied <laughs> that the character was divorced. And then you guys all pounced on that. And I was able to elide it with, it's complicated when you're an immortal giant from space or something along those lines. <laughs> right. Like, you know, the, the guy was definitely, you know, single in some larger sense. But as we had played the game some more, it became evident that he was probably single with, you know, air quotes around it uh, for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the garden was his own personal estate elsewhere. It had a lot to do with the fact that basically the implications that we, you know, uh, set up and facts that we knew about the celestial realm by the point at which the character became divorced uh, sort of implied that like basically all of Earth's pantheons, if you read it without the eye of one of the faithful, they, it looks a little dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. So I figured there had to be some kind of extremely messy story there that we weren't going to get into in a one shot. And just it was easier to, you know, imply that. Right. You have, there's a certain amount of subtext where you don't have to lay out the truth in entirety. You can presume enough based upon the ones that are established. You don't see it in television a lot, except when somebody brings in a celebrity as a guest star to something. And then, usually, they take a great deal of trouble in the first couple of minutes to establish what within the actor's wheelhouse we're getting in that episode. Right. There's the meta in terms of here's what this actor is going to perform. And then there's the, within the narrative of here's why this character is important to the right. story, you know, like on psych. And I want to say one of the early seasons, mm -hmm. uh, one of the guys from wings was the guest star is Sean's uncle. Right. And the, the main character of psych, if you haven't watched it, which you should, is a tremendously irresponsible human being. So one of the first things we learn is that this guy who on wings played another tremendously irresponsible human being is Sean's favorite uncle. And immediately you have some idea of what you're getting yourself into for the episode. <laughs> this is the person he's patterned his life after in some fashion. Oh, he liked this. Oh, okay. This guy must also be a train wreck of a human being. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can extend certain truths beyond what you knew already. They, they right. inform the ones you're about to see reinforced or revealed yeah. to you. Right. This gets used a lot with guests. I'm not sure how effective it really can be in literature unless you're somebody who has an existing and very expansive universe to draw on. 
So I know there's two parallels, there's two comparisons to make here. For instance, George R. R. Martin has a super fan he has hired to maintain consistency in the narrative because that Yikes. fellow is. But on the other hand, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in that universe. Right. <laughs> they've, they've, cre- they've recreated Westeros in Minecraft and it is a massive endeavor. It's, I think, a continent effectively in terms of actual scale. Okay. I, which doesn't surprise me. The fans are dedicated to that extent. But there's, I, I say, I cite it here because there is so much lore and depth and content of things that have occurred. The creator of the work cannot keep track of it anymore. Too much well, has I happened mean, the Malazan Book of the Fallen franchise is two guys trying to keep track of it. <laughs> Which I'm sure leads to some interesting discrepancies in terms of how they interpret it. They read very differently. I can tell you that much. That's fascinating. <laughs> I haven't, I am have familiar with the, with the series. I haven't read it. I wonder, do, do they alternate books or pieces of it or do they collaborate on all of it? No, so what they kind of did was they gave the main narrative to one of them mm. and a bunch of the side narratives to the other guy. That makes sense. You, you have to have some methodology for maintaining consistency. And Steven Erickson reads like an encyclopedia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there's, there's lots of obvious reasons for that. If you look in the man's background, we're not here to, you know, do a fan episode about him, but the, the other fellow who does, who does, who writes with him is, uh, Ian Esselmont. Uh, Ian Esselmont actually reads still kind of dry, but much closer to your like Moorcock or Howard school of heroic fiction. So the contrast is nice. Some more epic style, less the, Less ethical, active. active, okay. More active. It sounds like things are happening in Esselmont's books. And even when Erickson is writing what amounts to, you know, their version of Conan or something like that, it still reads really dry. I'm curious, is it all in the third person or is it all first? Uh, so it's one of these, especially in Erickson's books, it's one of these things where you're jumping perspective between multiple characters okay. going around over lots of continents. So it's mostly third person. But like, as of like the third or fourth book, this guy Carsa Orlong shows up, and Carsa Orlong is an extremely self-aware, like fantasy badass, basically. And somehow that doesn't read as any fun at all when Erickson's writing it. And I'm sorry to say this, but like everything to do with Carsa Orlong is my least favorite part of those books. So I'll go on the record with that. They're not bad, but like I just don't like this character. His lens is the wrong one to apply. Yeah, something like that. It just doesn't quite work. Like, you get a very good sense of who this dude is, but not in a way that feels particularly alive. In a sense, you're getting his past and his history, but not what is happening with him in the moment. Well, what's interesting is that that character in particular gets written with, like, a lot of his own internal monologue, as, mm. as opposed to a lot of the others. Sure. And it still feels just, it, it doesn't feel right for the character. It feels way too dry for that guy to be thinking that way. The tone itself is off. Yeah. It's a... We do, in fact, need to do an episode on perspective because particularly as you adapt works to other forms, well, adapt IPs to other forms of media from particularly books or comic books, web comics to television to film and so on, which is the common path nowadays. A lot of what belongs in the history and the world and the depth of the character can sometimes be left on the cutting room floor. Well, and then in contrast, in other things, you'll, you'll have it like get front-sided or brought to the front of the stage, I guess, mm. is maybe a better way to put it, to the detriment of the work. I, I know I do this in my own work, and partly because I grew up in film and television and camera culture, where I am conscious as a writer of the framing that the words provide. There are times where I cannot have the, I cannot find the actual words to say in descriptive manner, here's what occurs. Mm-hmm. So I will bracket and say, here's what is on frame. 
Sometimes it is multiple frames because I'm a visual person that way too. And I'm working with an illustrator. These might actually translate into illustrations, or they may just be a shorthand for me to look and go, how do I want to direct in terms of the description where the eye goes from one beat or piece to the next? Because you can, as with a camera or lens, move the direction of the narrative in a certain path in space and through a character's mind, I suppose, space you could call it too. Sure. Um, Although we're here to talk about world building, not presentation. So we might be going the wrong way. <laughs> you can get focused on, as I did in my recent revisions, how a character sees and feels and experiences the world without making sure you can convey the world itself to the reader beyond that. You can get caught in the narrative of the scene without conveying character, right? There's a lot of places where truths of world story and characters might be there, but not, not, might not be fully used or implemented or provided well enough for someone beyond you, the creator, to perceive of what's happening and why, and for it to feel impactful and meaningful and alive. It's easy. I'm, I'm vocalizing this aloud because I know in revision, let me revise this. I know, for instance, as I said on the show, when I revise, I'm often taking things out. I will look and go, this doesn't all need to be in this scene, because even though these truths of world story and character are important, they don't all have to be here. They don't have anything to do with this moment right here. Right. Sometimes even a very simple one occurs, whereas I said in the previous episode, there was one way of showing this thing already in the scene. I don't need to add another thing to convey that. I can key this other beat into the mechanism, the vehicle that's already present without having to add more paraphernalia, emotional, physical, or otherwise, to convey it. So in my case, revising that scene revolved around parsimony, pulling out everything that didn't have to be put there, that didn't have to be there, to convey the truths that did need to be there. We're going to talk today about the other side, though, that moment when you're first unraveling or unwinding or finding yourself in the state of confusion. You've laid out what you think to be true or know to be true about your world story and characters so far, and they lead a way you didn't expect them to. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, as often occurs in that moment, is this right? Is this going anywhere useful? And will I be genuinely surprised? And will the reader or the viewer or the audience be too? Should this come to life, be a part of the final piece? And you also have to think about in the context of surprise, should I be surprised? This is true. Sometimes the surprise doesn't work because there is not enough to lay, there isn't enough in the truths laid out already for this to make sense. Well, it's much simpler than that. I mean, should you be surprised or should the character behave pretty much how you'd think they were going to behave? Because occasionally that can be really satisfying. Right. You, you've, everything you've seen to date shows the character would in this moment respond or act this way. And so here I'm going to spoil the end of A Realm Reborn in Final Fantasy XIV for people because I just recently played through it at your urging and uh <laughs> sounds so satisfied there, there's a moment in which a character who they have told us over and over again for a really long time is just a bad dude right he's a rough customer he's a expert warrior all this that and the other is confronted with the evidence of a coup against his kingdom and his immediate response is just to straight up kill the first of the conspirators he can reach and all of a sudden you believe it for 60 levels, you haven't seen this guy act like who they've been telling you he was. Sorry, 50 levels. But you get my point. And then finally, he just does it in the scene. You're not surprised if you were paying attention. And it's great. It's a payoff. There's a tension that has been building up to this moment you've been waiting to have happen, even if not the particulars of it. It's a really tame narrative in terms of what you actually see, not what you do yourself. You're the warrior of light. You go around beating up the bad guys, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happens. But you don't see 
a lot of conflict or payoff or anything, really. It's all setting up for you to go do the exciting thing. And then finally, one of these major supporting characters does the exciting thing. And it feels really good, actually. I'm not going to lie. I was extremely satisfied at that moment. I think you're bringing to light an important part of the world building process, which is that the characters the story focuses on aren't the only ones doing and being in the world in which they live. Right. And that's important. Unless you're working with one of these um, extremely detached isn't quite the right word, but it's what I'm going to go with. Maybe isolated narratives like you see with some adventure fiction or some horror fiction where the rest of the world has actually sort of receded into the background because of the immediacy of whatever is going on. But the rest of the time, and in most circumstances, especially in the fantasy and science fiction genre, there is a larger universe, and you should be learning some things about it just in the process of reading through whatever's happening. So as a creator, in order for that to work, in order for those moments to feel natural and organic, and for you to know what else is happening and occurring in the world, as the one part of it your characters you're focused on now are acting, you have to know far more than goes into the book on the screen. There's a reason in television, for instance, they call the prep book the Bible. Most of that doesn't make it into a given episode, but it influences everything you see on the screen. And I recently made the decision to take this one book, which was becoming a little cumbersome, and break it into the three, which led to the challenge of going, okay, where does each of those begin and end? And is there enough for each of those to be a fully rich, deep, and contained narrative that will lead to the next and feel right and good and proper and inevitable so that by book three, those payoffs are fully there on the long stuff. But as you know, I am always in an act of discovery as I write. I may know quite a lot about things that are occurring or have enough to get by on where I'm at right now. And as I've said on the show, there are times where, oh, I'll, I'm not going to go into that stretch of history. Whatever happened on the other side of the world, whatever was before the Imperium, it doesn't, I know enough for this to be told. I don't have a thought toward it right now. I might later, but as of now, I don't. Well, you can you can do a lot with just the knowledge that like something bad happened at X point in the past in a narrative. You don't really need to know what the bad thing was in all the gory details. You just need to know something bad happened. Right. I remember a while back, one of the characters referred to the majority of what happened on the other side that people don't go to now, but ex had an exodus from as the lacuna, the gap. Is it the actual name of the people there? No, it's a word to describe what is unknown and lost. That they don't have much evidence of. In the of. real world, something like the Dark Ages. Yeah. <laughs> Which is in its own ways a bit of a misnomer because it wasn't absolute. But it was a period of life where a lot of things were inaccessible to most people in it. Well, the other thing is it says a lot about the people who coined the term and mm -hmm. what they thought about that era. Right. Whatever was good in that doesn't matter. It was still worse than it was better in their point of view. And that's important too. Who is declaring and saying what these things are and about? So we'll get to more of that in a bit. I was in the third, what will be the third book, exploring some of these deep old truths and old rights people were performing, and I stumbled into a bit of a hole about those faraway times. I also broke my toe while I was doing that, which I don't advise. Not a necessary part of the process. But it did lead me this point of wondering, as I was on the trail, do I need to know this? And will it lead to anything fruitful? The fear, right? I'm committing time and energy and effort to this. Is this something I need to do? Because I don't know. There's a lot of stuff emerging out of this. Is it any good? Who knows? I have to find what it is. But Well, the real answer is go ahead and publish without figuring it out and then write it as a prequel, right? I don't know if you all heard the disgusted noise that came out of his mouth, but it was there. <laughs> you and 
and I have talked about prequels. Yeah, they're usually a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm actually with you there, but, you know. There's a point where having everything in a Silmarillion fashion isn't necessary as its own text. Well, honestly, the problem with most prequels is that they are sort of backward confirming what you already know about characters based on the thing they're the prequel to. Mm-hmm. And that's not actually that helpful. If it's nothing unique or new, and I don't want to go too much into my feelings on, pre- on prequels, but I, I, for instance, when we talked on Star Wars, the, the prequel episodes, I think we all agreed there that episode two of those three would have been the best entry point. Probably. Stuff, stuff's happening from the beginning. It's active. I don't even think I was on that episode, but y'all were right. I, I think we said the best way to begin the prequels is the chasing with Anakin and Ben. Established relationship, motive, un- reveal everything else before that in the narrative that they're going through now. Well, yeah, and if you, if you were writing it probably as a standalone thing, you would do that, which actually is, why, is really why I brought it up. Mm-hmm. Because essentially you're trying to world build so that you don't have to do a prequel. There is a point where I don't need to know all of the world, but I've started to delve into things that were, let's say, 200, 300, 500 years ago that came up because of where the characters were now going and why. And I knew some of this in relative context, but it mattered so much more than it had in the past. And as I looked at the old notes, a lot of the threads, the truths were there in nascent form. But now they... I think as folks can recall listening back in episode 24, I said, this book will not have dragons in it. I do not care for dragons or demons or angels. I don't want any of it. My earliest draft had giant robots. That was when I was 18, okay? Well, giant robots are cool. Those should probably still be in there. They are, not in the way I thought they would be. (laughs) But yeah, I, I do. And I will someday share the actual space battle phenomena stuff i had drafted on the early days of chasing what was Ouch. awesome and cool. i didn't even realize mm-hmm. that's a shame you know i may eventually adapt it to something of its own nature that's a little more farcical and fun once i see what its shape is that's unique or separate from this or well i mean the gundam guys kind of have to market cornered on treating giant robots as a really serious thing so i wouldn't want to try to compete there here's the truth of the world we'll lay out now there's a couple we'll just lay out now so that we have them on the page as things that are true, definitively capital T. So as I said in the story, said before, there are those in this world too full of fire, literally and figuratively, and those who dream too much. Here's another truth of the world. There exist things like music, some pop culture, fiction stuff in our world that can be found in this one. I haven't fully unraveled the why of it in entirety, but for instance, Adam carries around a very beaten up copy of The Little Prince in Russian. That has a lot to do with his own history and origins and his father's study, which had a weird collection of sci-fi and pop culture and old wreckage and ruins and stuff he was digging into and trying to make sense of. But yeah, I had to confront that as I'm describing everything in Adam's tent as he's part of the military expedition he's on, there's a beaten up copy of a book that exists in our earth. And this isn't earth I'm writing, so that's weird. But it's there, which says a lot of things that I didn't know in entirety then. So that's a small truth that you have to wonder in terms of what big truth it leads to, right? And the same way there's, his, I think his mother has a record from Jeff Buckley, one of his last albums, that she plays in the house sometimes. Again, Jeff Buckley doesn't exist in this world. Why does she have that album? There has to have been some way that thing arrived or still exists here now, Right. So those kinds of things occurred a long time ago as a book one and book two, and they just sat there. 
And I've always had that question of the why, but also whether or not it really needs to be fully answered. And it hadn't in entirety. I still don't think in entirety it has to, but... I mean, not in exhaustive detail, no. God, no. <laughs> but... Well, you see, this copy of The Little Prince was passed down, but <laughs> it would be very boring. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't think I could do it with a straight face. I mean, really, Christopher Walken, with the uh, watch monologue, has pretty much put a capstone on that sort of narrative for everybody. <laughs> Amen. I'm glad he did. There, there's a beauty in describing a thing and revealing everything that is involved in it that is not just material. And there's a time and a place for that. But yeah, the phenomenon I encountered was this, we'll call it a religious apocrypha, I suppose, called the virulence, as in something viral, that have been brought up every now and then. They're considered largely hearsay by the religious orders that are in charge, but they're anonymous, they're accumulative. And they have a very different view of the way the world emerged and was and the gods are and why things are as they are now. And just to be clear, because I'm pretty sure I heard it right, that's TS virulence, not C. Yeah, okay. So it led me, as I was digging through this ball, just going back to your rat king of wires under the desk, effectively the same experience. How did this get here and what am I going to do with it? Because it had grown over time, I hadn't noticed the accretion, and now here's the thing that I'm unwinding. There was this set of things that seemed to be believed to be true instead of things that were definitively true, tied up into the virulence. And since it is an alternative history of the world and the gods and the faith and why things are the way they are, people would act according to whether or not they believed it was a definitive truth of the world in the now and in the then. And this spans empires, spans religious leaders, spans the exodus that led to people living where they live now. But it's, I think, as you pinned in our conversation on Discord, it is nebulous. Mm -hmm. And I think the best analog I had for it as we were talking was, for those of you who've read, A Canticle for Leibowitz, the core premise of which is this monastic order after the end of Earth finds a grocery list from one A. Leibowitz and presumes it to be a religious text. Just a tremendously freaking important document, yeah. It's one of the few things left from then. Right, so it must be cool. So I think the best way to proceed then, if you've now got sort of something to zero in on, which is apparently the virulence, is for you to tell me more about that. Okay. And I'm going to ask questions. It's probably the best way to do this, because as we've said, specificity is the, is the way you convey the truth in the small sense, but also the emotional impact of it. Well, we'll start with sort of the big picture here. Sure. Clearly the virulence are for some fraction of the population the bad guys, because you don't get a name like that if you're a good guy. No, it's going back to your, your term of the to, to your, your comment on the Dark Ages, this was named by the powers that be. Right. So they're the bad guys, or at least the powers that be think so. The, the text itself is is villainous in their eyes because it is it is pestilent, it is persistent, it has no definitive source. The text itself? You see, and this is a thing I've wondered, is the actual object itself something virulent? And Hold think, on, I'm missing something. Because we, the, way you, the way you were introducing the concept, it sounded like the virulence were a bunch of people with virulent things to say, perhaps. I think, I think you can apply it to both the, the text that they, the body of text they adhere to, as well as the, the heretical sect. Okay, so you could be a real asshole and make the, the text the virulence CE. <laughs> and that would be... Oh, goodness. I'd be a, that would be a real jerk move, is what that would be. 
but at least it would be nomenclatively, you know, consistent. It would be All derivative. Right. Sure. So there's so okay. So we've already learned one important thing: there is a book or some sort of text, and there are people who follow it, believe in it, whatever. And both of them are bad, according to who? Who who is it who says they're bad? You said the the powers that be. Who are those? I'm trying to think of how to best describe it. So the story, as it's told in through books, covers two main timelines and one and a third kind of tertiary. The two main timelines are about five years apart, and they're what we'll call, by and large, the present. There are two times Adam and Connor try to do the same thing. They fail okay. the first time. They try again the second. Five years apart. Has the view of these guys changed much, or is it the same view? Oh, no. There's a lot of there's a lot that's occurred during that that makes the second journey different. But no, no, no. Not that makes... Not, not No. The virulence, specifically. Has what people think about them changed in those five years? Okay, sorry. I misheard you. Yeah. The... Folks that initiated the war under whom Adam and Connor served were believers in the virulence, or at least a fair amount of things mentioned in it. If not the precepts, then the idea that there exist these ruins and relics and other things of ways things had been that they could use. Okay, so the virulent text I'm going to go with describes ruins, lost technology, stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of like the Dead Sea Scrolls in that sense. So to... To kind of get to not give you, really, but go ahead. <laughs> not in the literal way, no. To, to give you, we'll get to how it is like that later, because the Dead Sea Scrolls have a very particular weird origin. The prevailing belief in the faith, as is in most of the world, there are others, but the one that has in charge by and large at this point is that these two creator gods, gods, Helel and Ella, pulled a seed of the sun, of what sun ever, whatever sun had been from the deep well of night had a long, arduous journey through roads and abandoned cities and other things that were just gone and emptied, found two trees and tried to grow the seed there. A little hummingbird comes, steals the seed, and they chase it up the trees. One of them catches it, is pulled away with it. The other falls to the ground and shatters. And that is how we have the sun now and the one who was left behind to guide man. Okay, so you've got your creation there. That is the basic, here's how things are the way they are. Right. But the virulent text says what relative to that creation narrative? The virulent text presumes things before this story have happened. Okay, so now we're in a sort of Mayan space, right? right. Where there, there is this world, and then there were some other worlds before this world that are gone now. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the virulence are the guys who are telling you about those other worlds, whereas the orthodox view is that those worlds are gone and they don't matter. There's nothing from them in the here now, or if it is, it doesn't matter. They're gone and they don't matter. Okay. But whereas the virulence think those old worlds do matter. Right. That it's, I, I suppose in a way, it's a little bit like the Aboriginal dream time. What the virulence argues is that there is no new world, old world. It's all the same thing. It, it's all the old stuff permutes through, permutates through the new. There's no actual separation of the two, right? Okay. So on the face of it, that doesn't actually seem like such a crazy proposal. So what's so bad about that idea? This gets into, as we were mentioning before, the big exodus, the lacuna, and whatever happened before. As far as the orthodoxy is concerned, the only preamble, the only thing that follows of a major importance from this divide of the gods is when man eventually found the god that fell, Ella, and learned what wisdom they could from him to build life and society and everything else. So if, if you were going to Nerek, he's, you know, god of wisdom, culture, civilization, the important things that make life livable on the day-to-day. -day. 
All right, so th there's, there's a different way to look at this, which is that basically as far as orthodoxy is concerned, it doesn't matter what was around before Ella. I think that's kind of the central point here, right? Like fundamentally, man wasn't really man until we learned from because him. he told you everything you need to know. Right, literally, the world, our world, was built on his spine. That's the way okay. they view it. Consequently, anything that predates him, didn't come from him, whatever, must necessarily be profane because it's not. It didn't lead to the glory that is today. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's at least an understandable and not weird position. That that is one kernel from the old old days of the lacuna that is persisted throughout, as best the orthodoxy can tell, there that relationship wasn't per se as beneficial or kind as you'd like to think it, and eventually the other sibling came down because he felt that his brother was being used wrongly, if not physically being torn apart or picked apart for the wisdoms inside. And had things to say and convey about that. The difficulty is when you're the god of fire and the sun, you coming down to earth causes problems. Right. But not important to the issue of the virulence unless they had something to say about that. They did. So this is where it matters as far as the virulence are concerned. According to the orthodoxy, there's conflict. Hela is eventually driven back up. Ella takes whatever is left. And there's this grand exodus from the ruined world that is burned across the sea to where everyone lives now. And they lived underground in the dark for a long time because when you fight the sun, it goes out for a while. Eventually, it ignited again. Everyone moved back up, and that's how we have the glorious world that is today. This is me summarizing a lot. It's okay. It's kind of important to get to the point where we understand the distinction between the main narrative, which we just heard, yeah. and these other guys' narrative. The virulence presumed that the initial relationship with Ella was toxic. There was never any benevolence involved in that on the part of mankind. Okay, so basically, issue one, core issue one, is there shouldn't have been anything that mattered before Ella. Issue two is also these guys don't respect Ella in the way that everybody else would like to see them do. Right. Okay. Issue three, of course, is a corollary to that. If, the, if, the, if man's relationship with Ella and the virulence point of view was wrong, then Ella coming down to punish man is right. Ah, okay, yep, and that's obviously not going to... Why? Okay, so what we're looking at here is an essentially dualistic narrative, wherein the virulence are suggesting that what amounts to the bad guy of the traditional dualistic narrative is right. Now, that happens in real-world religion. I think, if I'm digging back to it, there's some in Zoroastrianism. Yeah. There's the belief of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mess the names up because it's been so long. There's a Hura Mazda who's the overseer, right? Aramaz is the bad guy, according to Orthodox Zoroastrianism. Right, there's Angramanyu, there's Aramaz. Oh, sorry, no, I've got it wrong. Yeah. Aramaz is the good guy, Angramanyu is the bad guy. Right, and I'm and there's an overseer over the two of us that is impassive and lets them do their thing. I forget I forget the name. It's been a long time in my history teacher from undergrad. Well, there are also the Yazidis who are a bunch of guys in Iran, largely, who mm -hmm. uh, essentially seem to believe that basically the traditional monotheistic narrative is wrong. And we should probably be on not literally the devils, but some somebody who is the functional equivalent of the devil, according to everybody else's narrative side, because he was actually looking out for everybody. So it happens in the real world, is the bottom line. This is where it continues. If, if Hela was right to punish, then the conflict where Ella drives Hela back up with the aid of man to live in the sun is an imprisonment. It might have been, as the virulence sometimes argue, and this is where the virulence start to split, some of them argue it's, a, it's an imprisonment. Some of them argue that this was a voluntary sacrifice in Hell's part. Yes, the sun is still needed. Life has to go on. 
I can see that this is wrong, but I will give man the chance to atone one more time. You know, I go back in the sky, you'll be punished by an eternity of dark. And after that, I will come back to you and you have the chance to live again. Right. Once you guys all cool it, we're going to go back to how it was. We're going to see how you do. Part of this schism, from what I know currently, is a consequence of people leaving what's called the lacuna while the fighting was occurring and after the last of it. So you get conflicting points of views as to why things are occurring on the other side of the world that is receiving these refugees. And those initial tales of how things went down lead into the orthodoxy, lead into the virulence in its various strains. But it's quite clear some major conflict occurred. The lacuna are deeply responsible. Everything went dark. We all lived underground. These are true. The question is why and who are the bad guys of it? And right. in a way, it's less important what the factual answers to those questions are, and you may never need to give them in the narrative, mm -hmm. than who now is on which side of that divide. Now, you mentioned there was a military conflict with the virulence on one of these sides. Right. So we'll go forward in history to closer to the now and lay out a little bit of that. Because that's the part that's going to matter most, I think. In the book, yeah. The two things that matter most are the thing closest to the now and the thing closest to the past. There is one other, uh, we'll call it a heresy according to the powers that be in terms of the Exodus. And that was they presumed a third god oversaw the Exodus. Ella was not involved in it. So for there to be one, one civilization god is wrong, sun god is right, and there's a third god. Right. Hold on. There's a third god now? No, that's not cool. That's too many. Right. Then, then the whole balance of the world and the way things fit together doesn't work according to the orthodoxy. So, yeah, the virulence are partly a capital or partly a plural because they are a plurality. They might all be considered virulent, but outside of adhering to certain core tenets, they start to fraction out. All right. So that is likely something you've developed past already, but it's problematic, right? There, yeah. there, there are certain, uh, the Manichaeans are another bunch of guys who thought there was a good guy and a bad guy in, in religion, right? And they're at the root of a lot of the heresies in the medieval period in a very broad sort of way. But again, everybody kind of went off in their own direction. Right. They, they were, I forget, was it before or after them that led to the three popes? Run that by me again. Was it before or after them? There was a point where, we, where they had three popes. I forget if the Manichaeans were involved in that. Oh, no, they weren't even remotely involved in that. The Manichaeans right, go way back. Right, that's, <laughs> that's way before away. that. But they're at the root of, in a weird way, okay, a lot of the medieval heresies. The Manichaeans are actually out of Zoroastrian, or at least the same tradition that produced both it and the Aziz. Mm -hmm. And they're from much longer ago. No, you're, think, you're thinking of much later. I mean, mostly the... the the divided Pope period, to the best of my recollection, comes in more like the 13th and 12th centuries, somewhere in that vicinity. Right. Okay, that's what I thought. I seem to recall quite a few hundred years between. The Manichaeans go back to the 3rd century AD. Yeah. Way a over. A thousand years between. Roman contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is, right, the roots of what the Manichaeans were thinking, what the Zoroastrians were thinking, infiltrate a lot of Christian heresies through the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. okay, which eventually, over literally a millennium, leads to an explosion of very interesting ideas. 
about what Christianity ought to mean in the medieval period. So this is where I think to speak to the now, and this is something I've had to delve into and try to start making sense of, because I, I had kind of the, let's call it grade five history understanding of most of it, because uh-huh. that was all I needed to tell. And I've the ruins the characters are in now date back to this time period after folks have been living underground and encountered what they do there, and slowly as they emerge back onto the surface. Okay. Uh, so let's tie back. Let's tie into this two truths we had laid out before. There are those who fall of fire and those who dream too much. All right. All the faith, all the faiths across, regardless of which division they are in this bigger religion, agree that those are true. Agree that those who fall of fire are in some way tied to the god of the sun. Because he never seems like a sound logical association. Don't even need to explain that. One. There, there's the witness phenomenon that those get pulled back up to him, presumably to be consumed by him to sustain his body. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, obviously, ritual sacrifices, intentional or not, those are all things. Likewise, the broken God who's mostly dreaming because he's ruined and his bones don't even fit together anymore is tied to the ones who dream too much. They are what makes sense of him most of the time. Mm-hmm. Everyone agrees this is an observable phenomenon. Why, of course, they argue about. Those folks still emerge even after the fall of the Cuna, even after largely there's no much talk, more talk of the gods and worship is probably scattered and clandestine, right? There are groups who are going to worship the gods. There are groups who are not going to care for them at all because what the hell? <laughs> they seem to be largely responsible for what happened. Why would we continue to cater to them? Well, there are some who probably try to do it. So it sounds like then... A pretty obvious inference is that the virulence are all going to be pretty religious because if you've got some kind of off-kilter belief about that, you sort of have to take it seriously. Oh, yeah, they're, I think, by and large, devout. And this gets into, oddly enough, one of the things you and I talked about, probably in episode, I want to say eight, the Toscas, which were those small remote villages where those two full of fire and those two who dream too much were trained and cultivated as bloodlines. Right. And... In this underground era, when you're waiting for the sun to come back and you're all trying to survive and people fraction off and live how they do, there reached a point where more often than not, those too full on fire and those who dream too much decided this wasn't the best place to live because you're a ritual sacrifice, you're an re- emblem of whatever was divine before and expected to perform up to that, or life was miserable anyway, maybe things are better with what we can do that no one else can do up there. Sure, it might be dark, but we make fire, Right or we change what we see anyway, so we can survive where no one else could. So by the time the majority of folks resurface, living in old stuff and ruins and things they've made, they find there are villages, Tosca's on the surface, the earliest ones, where those too full of fire and those who dream too much live, as well as those who take care of them. People who, for lack of one reason or another, escaped, found their way, created life back up Logically, here. those seem like they should be virulent hotbeds. Oh, absolutely, because again... There's no other force to deny them. Well, also, I mean, the virulence are pretty pro-sun. So if you're going to, you know, consider that that's probably where your power over fire derives from, it seems like they'd be a lot more tolerant and less right. inclined to murder those people. And if you uh, grow up underground your whole life and are told we have to wait till the sun comes back and that's the sign the gods love us and you go up and there's the sun, well... Okay, great. So clearly, <laughs> you know, everything's fine, yeah, right? Yeah. There's life. We are favored. There's sunlight. Matter resolved. Looking good. Here's where things, I think, between the orthodoxy and, from what I know now, the uh, virulence get more complicated. You know, I said there were no dragons, because I didn't. I don't want fantasy trappings in the story. It was not a thing I was interested in writing. Yeah. There are these large, bizarre, alien, serpentine-like things that are ancient, in some ways tied to the gods. 
and definitely not dragons. No, I, I, again, I didn't intend them to be there, but again, they mostly feed off of light. So when the sun goes out, where are they going for their food? Underground, to where there are generators. To wherever those, they can find something. Or there are those two full of fire whom they can eat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you've got cults underground where you find these monstrous things, and sometimes you sacrifice those two full of fire to them because you get left alone. And they keep anything that would bother you away because they're horrifying. So you have the virulence you see on the surface and kind of an animistic faith that emerges as a permutation of the orthodoxy down below. Eventually, the virulence are established and the orthodoxy and animist emerge on the surface and try to live there too. And there's enough space for that to be okay at first until people grow and cultivate and argue over how things should be. So which asshole harnessed one of these things that are definitely not dragons? and pointed them right straight at the nearest pile of virulence. Because somebody did it. Absolutely. And this, <laughs> According to the orthodox narrative of this sort of situation. This weirdly ties into the episode Dave and I did on currency, mm. which was the first kind of big deep delve into characters finding old coins that have meanings now that are not what they were back then. In the early days of these villages, the Tosca, in which the virulence cultivated and raised the, the chosen of the gods, let's call them, because... Everything's know, going good for, in these villages at first. Right. They're, they would find these things they would refer to, we'll call them as advent, signs left behind by their presence or their being, a mark of the faith, right? You were visited by one of the divine, here's a relic of that. Could be a slight you know, piece of hair, fabric of their cloth. Probably very mundane things at first, but they were signs of divine favor, probably taken as. Eventually, you start to develop a bit of this currency in terms of what you can exchange for those favors or what you're presumed to be worthy of for having been favored. And of course, those who cultivate those two full of fire and to march start to build up an economy of currying in exchange for div- giving divine favor. And this leads to a, I don't want to call it, it is effectively feudalism, isn't it? Where those with the most power are also those with the most stuff. I mean, that's sort of how that works, Jared. <laughs> are also those most closely tied to the virulence. Oh, okay. So yeah. really what you're telling me is is actually not a, it, it's not a feudal situation. No. Especially if the virulence don't agree among themselves. No, it's it's kind of a, well, even on the most mundane sense, let's say you, you want to invoke the, you know, the gods, as it were, to provide rain. There are consequences to providing too much rain in areas. Use an example. You flood your neighbor's area. The river works for you, but it goes downstream. So there are the, there are the you know, tribal turf conflicts and the like, but when you add into it the animist and everything they're tied into and their understanding of the way the world is, and that the virulence have all the power up on the upside, conflict is inevitable. And the animist, for lack of a better word, win by, as you said, harnessing giant monstrosities. They're perfectly happy munching on the giant amounts of sunlight and things that can sustain them otherwise. That gets messy. The virulence, the people who build the Tosca's retreat and they hide, and one of these retreats is a thing the characters are finding now in the book, part of the book that I'm writing, out of this emerges what will become the new orthodoxy. All the trappings of how we raised and cultivated these chosen individuals, as it were, to serve our needs fiscally and otherwise didn't work. So we have to come back into the world as a new theology, right? They, they effectively emerge as the beginnings of what's now called the Baal Imperium that is led by the Maitreya. No hubris in there whatsoever, of course. Nah, it seems like a completely reasonable title to take on yourself. Right. It ties back into the idea of the Advents and wh- how one, he had a revelation in his mind of how you determine worth. 
And it was both in terms of how we deem the gods or those like the gods to be worthy and how we deem people worthy to receive of their gifts. And in his belief, everyone should be worthy of divine gifts, provided they have done the work to warrant it. And this could be the work of an individual. This could be the work of an entire village. Everyone is worthy of divine benison. However, I will be the one to adjudicate it. And this leads toward the new set of Tosca's, the Empyrean, which divorces itself from the virulence, lays down two creator gods, one tied to those who dream too much, one tied to those too full of fire, how they made the world it is, and why they've left their, for lack of a better world, children behind to guide and provide for it. There's just, you know, divine right, everything is perfectly ordered, this is the way the world's going to work, it's smooth, everyone gets what they want, shut up and follow me. And they win, which is the important part. They win what? They manage to take back most of the lost territories. They build up the empire. They create the roads. Okay. The aqueducts, yeah. So what you have basically is an essentially, uh, let's call it diverse system in place, confronted by, what are these things that are totally not dragons called? Because I'm going to feel silly if I have to keep calling them that. Sanawa, as in Susanoo, the god of thunder, because the first one that was witnessed gives off excess energy as thunder and lightning. No, I'm sticking with dragons. Okay, so look, they, they get wrecked up real bad by the dragons, and then they reconsolidate as sometimes happens when that occurs. Right. right? They cloister underground. The leader of them, presumably, leader, has a revelation. He might have had an actual revelation, or it's just written that he had a revelation. It's Well, he said he did. Much the same way that, you know, Constantine said he did. Right. You say you had a re- revelation, you roll with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an established order in history. No one proves you wrong, you're right. Right. And so his conclusion is different from the virulent faith, you know, broadly speaking, in that, no, it's totally fine that there are two gods. That's just what's, that's just what's up. There are the two gods. Well, the virulents are fine with the two gods. The virulents are, they go through kind of a, I'm not thinking. So this is, I think, where we get to the, ref, the uh, reference to the Aseans and the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with old history of Israel, but there were four major sects during the collapse of Jerusalem one of which were living in a cave under the, the plateau where the zealots were fighting against the, it was the Romans, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Romans, while on their way to build the ramp up to slaughter the zealots, decided to gut the Essenes too, because they were there. The Essenes had... I mean, there's a little bit more to it than they were there, but sure. it, um, it'll suffice. <laughs> yeah. The Essenes also had a very unique way of presuming the way the world would go, that they wrote down in the scrolls. So. From what I understand, the virulents survive less as a sect and more as a text at this point. There are obviously adherents that persist throughout, but it's no longer the thing defining, it's no longer the power. So the bottom line is that the Maitreya lays down the new order, right? And the virulence is essentially a relic of the pre-Maitreya worldview about the past. Among the virulents, not among these other people who, who are apparently bribing dragons to eat everybody. The animists are also subsumed in this by, among other things, the dragons or whatever you want to call them, being captured, murdered, and tamed. Okay, so this is, that's a much clearer narrative. Yeah. Right or wrong, the Maitreya has a revelation that results in a syncretism <laughs> of beliefs that makes the old ones uh, out of favor. Unnecessary. <laughs> out of favor. Yeah. Okay. Sure, you can worship these. There are aspects of the divine. This is what it is now. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as one of the things he gives as proof is that in one of their adolescent stages, those two full of fire do sometimes grow vestigial scales and stuff like that. 
It's weird. And therefore? Are tied some way to the other things that are also like other servants or aspects of the god. Uh-huh. Or either... Which apparently like to eat. Considering the sun god still consumes to this day and throughout this entire cycle, those two full of fire to sustain himself. A noble sacrifice, of course. We need the sun to survive. The Toscas and the Kodani, the, the folks who oversee all this, emerge as a religious force. They oversee who is found, who is selected, who is trained, who is removed, when it is time for you to go, when it is time for you to remain, all of that. They become de facto priests who say are sages and occasionally enforcers of the greater will. But by and large, they're there to cultivate and help build this history, the technology, all the stuff that makes empires work in the day-to-day. And it does. The Empyrean lasts a fairly good time, despite the disgruntlement of those who are unhappy with the way things go. It does matter in the narrative, but eventually the Empyrean topples. There's a war, there's revolution that collapses. This is important in the now because the military force Adam and Connor work with is led by people who have found the old virulent tracks and believe, if not the truth of it, that there is truth in it. And they are invading the territory that is the remainder of the empire, where a large element, a large number of those relics are, and the residents wish them to be untouched. Whatever all of that was, it led us to where we're at now, which isn't great, but it's okay. Leave it alone. So, Okay, so now, now you've got a counter-narrative emerging, right? Yeah. So this new group of people with awareness of the virulent text has reached the opposite conclusion as the people who presumably produced the text. Correct. One of the, the pivotal things they hinge on is a speech given by the last Maitreya before the Imperium fell where he is producing this means for people to get off the earth and fly again because he has found proof that man once flew among the stars. Mm-hmm. And it is his view that, as we talked about during the, uh, the tree episode, that it is time to take the best of us and leave and the rest of them can deal with whatever happens to this world after we're gone. This last Maitreya's name is what? Richard Branson? Elon <laughs> Musk? Uh, Ryojin. Okay, so Elon Musk. Got it. He kind of is the Elon Musk of his time, I suppose. I got all the money. Let's just get out of here. I have the money, the influence, and the power. Everything is collapsing. Okay. So really, then, in a sense, these anti-virulent text people are trying to reassert the previous orthodoxy of the period during which people lived in caves. Right. They found evidence of the glory that was. They found relics and indications of things that are far beyond even anything the lacuna, whatever scraps of that are mentioned in. So it's quite clear there are things before and before and before that are left here untouched. And they disagree that they should remain untouched. There is a power here we should use. I don't mean like, you know. Well, who disagrees? The folks who disagree are largely the, the, the descendants of the Imperium. The folks okay. who live in that large. So they, yeah, they lost that one. Post-Imperium people yeah. are like, no, we need to go ahead and leverage that stuff to get back on top. Am I right so far? Okay. I'm, I wish I had a map I could show you, because this would probably make it a little easier. Okay. Let, let's talk about uh, East and West, if that helps. Just to kind of... Yeah. Which side's where? <laughs> the folks arguing at this point in the present that there was value in the relics of the past we need to use now to live beyond the meager means we have. Right. Those are on the West. Those are not okay. the folks who lived in the remnants of the Imperium. Those are folks who lived in the remnants of the Imperium's conquered territories. Okay, so these are the guys who are not reasserting cave orthodoxy, let's call it. 
their ancestors overthrew the Imperium. Right. And now they are going, there's still stuff. Okay, so they've, they've clearly reached a uh, sort of a radical position of deciding that, obviously, even though the Imperium was doing pretty good, they could do better. Right. They was overthrown for good reasons, but there are things there we still should use. Mm-hmm. So they agree with their ancestors that the revolution was needed, but not everything had to be burned or buried or left beyond. Those who live Whereas, in the actual remnants right. of the ruins in the East are fine enough leaving it be. They've lived the worst of all of this. See, that's very backward. Yes. It's like not an ordinary reaction to having been on top. No, it's a, it is a bit psychotic. I don't know about psychotic, but it's, um, you don't see that much. No, I was surprised when that became the prevalent sentiment. Well, let me ask you a question, because I can think of cases in history which are sort of like that, and they basically all depend on the power structure, believing that something would get out of hand and remove them as the power structure. Right. So in the fall of the Imperium, a lot of awful things occurred when you don't have people governing the care and raising and rearing of those who dream too much and those too full of fire, they were on muck. And there weren't the code in, in the order there used to be to hunt them down and control them and raise them properly. So there was a lot of, we'll call it the Dark Ages. It was a miserable time for a lot of people. And eventually that mellowed out. There aren't many known left who are too full of fire or dream too much in that part of the world. And they're kind of okay with that. They don't get the miracles they used to but they also don't get the horrors. So life might be slower and more pastoral. The religious leaders who are around might be more fragmented in how they govern things. There's been no... See, that's weird. That's genuinely a strange reaction. It is. So the only thing I can posit is that what you're effectively looking at is a sort of parallel to the like post-Roman era, where everybody knew that at one point somebody had been in charge of everything, Yeah, you're living in... But because of a breakdown of the system, Mm -hmm. all right, a lot of smaller fish, as it were, are coming out ahead. So you've got your individual kingdoms of this guy and that guy and that other guy go on basically as far as they can see. We talked about this in the the Advent episode where as much as it had a unified value and purpose during the Empyrean, what gets called an Advent and what it can be traded for and as well as its constituent coinages starts to disintegrate in this era because there's no consistency from one realm, as it were, to the next. Okay. So what you're going to have then are some extremely diverse takes rather than one consistent one. Right. It's a... On what's a good idea. They don't get unified, I would say, or unified is loose, but there's not a unified response until an invasive force happens. Because then there's an agreement, you know, there are those who obviously can see the invading forces right and join them. But, but, you know, if, if the people from the West come in and they tell you, we're going to take all your cool stuff and we're going we're gonna to use it to glorify us, of course, there's going to be resistance to that. That's an easy thing to rally and, and, and elevate you too. Right. So who's the traitor who decides, you know what? No, I'm going to go ahead and elevate myself. Yeah. Or, or is that not part of your narrative? They're, I'm trying to think of how best to describe this because they do meet her in... The first book eventually. All right. So so such a person exists. That's all I really wanted to know, because there would have to be at least one. Somebody's going to be like, you know what? You guys have the right idea, but it should be me in charge. Right. Part of the reason things are slow. She is one of those who dream too much, and she's been around a long time. Oh, well, that's not even the kind of thing I'm talking about. No, I I mean, that's that's a clear adversary. Right. But there's going to be one of these, you know, jumped up local rulers who's like, you know what, though, it would be a good idea if I were in charge, because there were tons of those in history. So there are, the conflict 
I suppose it started initially it's among, you know, various local potentates. And then it's a question of at what point do you unify against the invading force? Because whatever you disagree on. Well, usually slowly. And there's going to be people who are like, you know what? Yeah, we'll sign on with you and sure. things like there's that. Probably plenty of villages that went, okay, sure. <laughs> oh, anything, you're in charge now. All right, great. Does anything here change? <laughs> Where are we no? going? Fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because that happens a lot whenever people can get away with it, basically. If things don't change here, if the rivers still flow, if it still rains, if nobody's coming to take half of my crops. No, they probably are, though. Yeah. If, if nobody's coming to take two-thirds of my crops where they used to take half, if, if the change is manageable or not much of a change, then sure. So that's part of what makes the, the, the work scattered and long and take a while. Yeah. Yep. So what's the important question relative to the world's history, then, that okay. emerges from this? So we understand the environment in which this phenomenon exists pretty well. Yeah. I assume there are also holdout uh, original virulence somewhere. Yes, like Adam's father. Right. Okay, so good. That's that's an easy answer. Yes, there are. They have a place in the narrative. Great. Yeah, there are, there are folks who have dedicated far more time than most other people to digging into all of it to come up with their own answer as to what is right. And since he lives in a remote mountain village, can raise his family accordingly. Okay. So what you told me is you need an explanation of the history here that helps all of this make sense. And it actually seems to me you have a pretty coherent notion of the history here. So what's missing? So here's the, the part where things are tied to the virulence, and I'm not sure how much of it is apocrypha and how much of it is true. Okay, I think we need to stick with the, the virulence as the people and the virulent text as the apocrypha, because that's just it's a lot clearer as a way to discuss it. So are we talking about people or the text? The text. Okay. The virulent text. You should give it a name. It should have a fancy name. I have. I don't have one for it yet, which is why it doesn't have one yet. Well, think about it. It should have a fancy name. It obviously would. It's yeah. I will arrive at it. I know I will. It's one of those things where I have to let the space just be. And oh yeah, that. that should have a proper noun, and it should be a good proper noun. Yep. But go on. <laughs> so, the weirdest part of the virulent text. It might even be the virulent texts, and there might be more than one of them. That's up to you. Again, but go on. <laughs> this is where so the first, the prologue of the entire series is safer, which is Hebrew for book because Adam gets a book that is a book and isn't a book. Okay. And what is textual and what textual means and how words influence things emerge is an important part of the story. But as I was writing a scene where Adam finds his father not overseeing the main services in the sanctuary, but in his study by the fireplace, and these rites he's performing are not the ones he usually sees his father do, he asks, because, you know, these don't seem to be part of the faith you teach. And this is part of the weirdness of Joseph. He teaches more of the orthodoxy than he believes. That's not all that weird. No, but in his <laughs> private space. That's not all that weird. It's not uniquely weird, no. It's first part of what makes him him. In his private space, he goes and practices the rights he believes are necessary. And he says to his son, I forget exactly why, but as he had mentioned to him in the, in the prologue, there was a time where we met fire and it gave us a promise, it gave us a promise to guide us through the stars. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact line here. That's okay. It's not bad. It, it, it's better said, but it doesn't need to be for this. Right, that, that's, that's, that's okay. I get the sense of it. Go on. And he gives to Adam this book that isn't a book because it has no cover, it has no pages. But as Adam engages with it and tries to get it to work, he experiences this first-person perspective, as it were, let's call it that, of a thing that happened. Now, by this point in the story, we've seen Adam in his tent and during the war collect various model, let's call them spaceships of fantastical or otherwise realistic design, 
it's a thing he's always been fascinated by. His father had a collection of them too that he made. Okay. And there are these ancient weird scraps and ruins that are on the surface and deep down on the earth that don't make a lot of sense that in the larger seem to suggest a big thing crashed or many things crashed. And this was one of those moments as I was writing where I went and said, am I going to do this right now? Is this where the story is going? What the hell? So as I'm on the trail, I see someone in, for lack of a better word, a spacesuit walking with someone else. One of them's younger than the other. So it's not maybe parent or child, something like that. That's kind of the dynamic I, I could feel. And they're walking along what is clearly the outer shell of a ruined arc ship. And it's been ruined for a while. There's just tritus floating all around. And they're heading slowly, bit by bit, toward the prow because the ship has collided with something. So the, the little narrative here is them walking through this part of the ship, dodging things floating around, seeing the weird floor that has emerged out of what were probably perfectly reasonable biome material, just drifting in uh, sheets of bacterial culture and whatnot now. Time has passed, things have gone weird, and they're walking down to the prow of the ship where they can turn on some physical lights and have a look at what's over there, because it's very dark, and they all have only their little personal lights to see by. And I'm describing this going the whole time okay but where's this edit what's the payoff here yeah right and uh i knew these were this chapter was going to be three short stories or these two chapters would be three short stories of darkness thunder and silence those were the names i had jotted down i didn't know why i just knew and sometimes I go, okay let's see why so this is darkness and as they're they're wandering down toward the prow they feel and sense that something's there but they can't see it and when they do they're rightly horrified because it's weird and alien and eldritch and the thing I could tell then is whatever they encountered is only a part of what's there. They're only encountering the thing that exists when you shine a light on it. So whatever it is that they're seeing isn't the entirety of what is there. It's a blind man and the elephant situation. Kind of, yeah. And I don't have exact words for it, but that changed them and the residents of the ship. There, This is where I, I was texting you before. I kind of struggle with some aspects of it. So I kind of take a few things and go, well, let's presume it's true just to see what follows, right? If you don't know a thing is true, just take a truth and follow to see where it leads. So, okay, let's, let's, let's say they encountered something eldritch, whether they communicated with it or not, it's unclear. As best I could tell, this thing had been there pouring through the ruins of the ship, trying to grasp what it is that it encountered. Okay, well, I mean, here's an easy answer to what the yeah. thing is, in a very literal sense, but not a descriptive one. Sure. It's what the ship crashed into. Yeah, they know that. And That's what, a giveaway, basically. Yeah. This is clearly the thing that their ship crashed into. Yeah. The ship crashed into it. It's been dormant for a long time. They've gotten by. They've reached a point where someone... Well, maybe it's just not in a damn hurry. Yeah. <laughs> and Eldritch things usually are operating on a different time scale than people. It just may be taking its time. Whatever. And I got the feeling that it wasn't malicious. It was curious. Well, yeah. Something slammed into it in the void of space. Yeah. That's a, that's not, that is not... I'd wonder what happened. So they are changed horrifically by the encounter, as is it, although that's less relevant to the story as told. But whatever follows from there... So here, here's... Hang on, because I think I can tell you some things. Ooh. We've got this mysterious third god narrative sort of woven throughout the virulent text. Clearly this thing is, is the third god, as far as Adam knows. It, it seems like the... Because it's not recognizable as either of the other two. So within... I mean, is he aware of this narrative? Yeah. courtesy of his father the version the origin version he he says this little hummingbird that travels with the two gods throughout the entirety of their journey okay it's the one that steals the sun 
Right. And importantly, when people die in their burial rites, they portray them as a little blue bird flying out to take the soul. So it's a psychopomp. Yeah, fine. Yeah. But that is the only, I think we could say, remnant of our, our idea that there was a third thing traveling with the other two. Okay. It's, of which he's aware. Yeah. It, him discovering that there was, in fact, a third thing is a revelation. Okay. Sure. So probably that's what he's going to interpret this thing as in some way, shape, or form. Right. So the. I think actually this answers a question of sorts because there's a gap between this moment and the next thing I know happened. Right. In a definitive sense. I do know at some point after this, there are just three survivors left on the ship. Yeah. And I'm not sure because it's quite clear as they were written as Adam experiences a part of their life that they are not human in entirety. Yeah. And I stumbled upon because Hebrew lore is woven throughout the book. I, I, I stumbled upon a scene where later in that period of time, they are writing them na their names on themselves as one would with a golem to make it come to life. It seems to me they are either some type of artificial thing, like a clone that didn't have any type of vital essence in it, or they were a shell in which perhaps maybe some type of AI was put, you know, provided a body, right? They, they have the body of man, but not the, the experience of being a person. Because as Adam witnesses, they stumble around the ship that is otherwise abandoned, is full only of darkness, thunder, and silence, and find remnants of things. There's no language, but there are symbols and signs trying to communicate things that they puzzle out a language from. There are clothes and books and other stuff that they start to piece together uh, who that looks like us was before. And this is the biggest heresy the virulents claim. Those were the gods, those three. One, that there's three, but those three are the gods in their earliest form. So not only are the gods some weirdly conceptually alien, different thing, but they were also deeply mundanely childlike in their origins. Who's claiming this? This is the, the virulent folk. The, the right, the but, but who, who out of them is claiming this? Because it sounds like Adam, who is pretty well based in a virulent right. understood view of the world, That's something he... has no idea about that. Right. Yeah, he. This is not a thing he stumbled. A thing he knows as a child. But apparently, there is somebody who does. Who there is somebody who does not. Right. So does does Adam encounter them at some point in the narrative? Later? Yes. Does Joseph, his father, has uncovered some of this and is puzzled by it because it's so weird and okay. unique. I don't want to go into too much depth, but there are characters in the uh, Imperian timeline that are ana analogous to the characters in the now. Yeah. So there's a King Joseph back then too. Fine. There are reasons for this that are not surface level. Okay, I don't think that has anything to do with what we're talking about. No. I could be wrong. But that that king, for instance, back then, deeply of the belief that this old virulent ideology is factually true in entirety. Right. Part of why he gets involved in the revolution the way he does. Well, that's all fine. But I can see what the notion or what the vision of people encountering an outside presence has to do with your narrative broadly. Yeah. I don't think that the three creatures discovering themselves has much to do in a useful way. So this is where I haven't... So I'm missing to, something. Yeah. This is, and this is part of why I said it was nebulous, because this is over the past few months where, as everyone knows, life was deeply traumatic and clarity was not at its peak anyway. But as, as, as I was muddling through all this old stuff that had... Or old truths that had led to these very weird new truths and trying to figure out where everything fits to determine how much of it belongs in the book and how much of it is just the, oh, well, you know, right. that's there. As best I, based on what is, I guess we'll call it little T truth, 
because it's only experienced by certain characters. So it's not definitively for everybody true. But from what I've seen based on what characters I have written about have perceived, the three of them chose the names LL, the Hellel, Ella, and Ian uh-huh. from whatever they were before. Okay, but and how does that help your story? This it's is an what, interesting detail, but how does so, it help? This is the part, this, this, goes back, this is where the claim of the virulence ties back into the lacuna lore. The, and I'm trying to figure out which of these is the better place to, well, I'll say one and I'll get to the other, I guess. That ship crashes. There are arguments as to why, among those who even believe this in the first place, but it does. And the three gods are left with what's left to make the world that is now. We talked like the Mayan eschatology, or the Mayan lore before, of the worlds before worlds. These three were left in the thing before now and made enough oh, of what from is now. the thing before. Yeah. Now. So yeah. they're part of the world that was before and made the world that is. Right. And however, that ties into the orthodoxy of, you know, fire from the dark going to the two trees, et cetera, it does still lead to the idea that the lacuna dug into some of this ruin and wreck and learned to make what they could out of it. The one that calls himself Hello comes down. There's a conflict from that. But of the three characters in the story, Adam, Connor, and Sophie, each of them has increasingly, as become apparent, ties to one of those three. I, I don't feel in entirety that like they're incarnations, but it is apparent that they are able to experience some type of past selves regression or whatnot. You've established some kind of cyclical narrative. Yeah, I get it. It's recursive. There's definitely a recursion occurring here. The why of it is not entirely established the virulence argued for the recursion that's the biggest heresy because the orthodoxy argues for just a sheer progressive forward motion they argue for a straight line view of time yeah bottom the, line the virulence are basically arguing that everything is will be again it's just going to keep going it's karmic it's 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 linear versus circular yeah uh, right fine which yeah like at the deepest root i'm not sure in entirety outside of for instance some of the ruins that Dolores, the commanding officer of Adam and Connor, work for, her, she, and her father, who are the invading force to the east, have stumbled upon and derived some understanding from ruins of what they think is the ship or things like it, and other findings from the Imperian time, et cetera, that in their reading suggest whatever it was, we were capable of far more than we have the ability to do now, and we should not be satisfied with this. We need to strike forward we can do better and we should right this is not enough mm -hmm. and we're willing to sacrifice to get to whatever is more than this a good story can excite us yes but the best ones fiction or not compel inspire or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life remember you don't need to know everything right now but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.